Welcome back to the Ion Security Podcast. This is Luke McNamara, and I am back today with Mandan EVP Jurgen Kucher for more insights from MTrends 2020. So getting a little bit more granular in looking at what we saw this past year, I noticed one of the stats that we included and in looking at what we saw when we were responding to, to breaches, I think about 15% of the investigations we did, we found evidence of multiple attackers in the, the customer environment. In these instances, maybe help listeners understand what do we see about the nature of those multiple attackers or adversaries uh, when they're present? Are they aware that there's other attackers in the network? Do we ever see evidence of multiple groups collaborating? What are we seeing in these examples? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to take a look back first at a little bit sort of the history of incident response here and some of the things that we've seen here at Fire Manion over the last 10 plus years. We actually used to see a lot more cases where there were multiple attackers within an environment, right? So we used to have that percentage that is now 15% be a lot higher in the past, but we've never actually seen an instance, uh, as, as far as I can look back, where we've actually seen collaboration between different active groups in a single environment, right? In fact, we really think that oftentimes these different attackers, these different threat actors have no idea that there's other threat actors in the environment because, to be honest, they also often don't care. They have their assignment, they have their goals that they're going after, and that's what they're pursuing. we got to remember for these threat actors, this is their job. They have an assignment, they complete their assignment, they move on to the next assignment, right? So as a result, we've really not seen any sort of evidence of collaboration between those different threat actors. Now, there are two special scenarios that probably could be mistaken for collaboration that I want to highlight that we here at FireManion don't consider collaboration, right? One is uh, we, for example, see certain threat actors reselling access to compromised environments, right? In fact, we've seen that at 3% of all intrusions in the last year, right? But we don't see the same multiple attackers being active in the environment at the same time. This is really just different threat actors specializing on different types of parts of the attacker lifecycle and then selling access to other threat actors. It's only one threat actor at any point in time active in the environment here. The other element, the other example is we do see uh, in the past, especially we've seen, for example, Chinese APT groups sometimes struggling to uh, complete their objective within a certain client environment, right? And uh, after a certain period of time, we suddenly see one threat actor group being replaced with another threat group, right? And uh, it sometimes looks like because one group ultimately didn't accomplish their mission that maybe the Chinese government decided to let another threat actor go at the same environment and hopefully complete their mission, right? Uh, but again, when we do the investigation, what we then see is we find often remnants of the early attacks, the unsuccessful attacks, right? But ultimately, when we line it up and we build the timeline of our investigation, we do see that these were subsequent attacks and that, again, there is no real evidence of any collaboration or working together between the different threat actors. So switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about insider threats. Um, why are we seeing more of that activity now? Uh, and do you feel that most organizations' security programs are set up to address that specific type of threat? 
Yeah, we're definitely seeing an increase, right? On one hand, of course, it's a very broad spectrum of attacks, right? Malicious insiders can destroy critical business systems. They can leak confidential information. They'll stalk employees. They'll perform extortion and blackmail, sometimes even get involved in economic espionage, right? They're motivated by greed or desire to hurt their employer or for vengeance, right? And of course, these attacks increase because they're as I said earlier, they're easy to execute, right? Attackers often have existing permissions to access the data and the systems in question, and they're very, very high impact, right? And in many cases, especially extortion cases, right? Many cases have been publicized and they highlight, unfortunately, the financial gains that can be made very easily here. And of course, as always, that then encourages sort of that copycat behavior. And I mean, when it comes to security programs that organizations put in place to try and address insider threats, we're definitely seeing organizations putting more emphasis on their security programs. But unfortunately, there are a lot of hurdles to being really successful to detect insiders. One is the culture in most organizations is to trust anyone on the inside. As an employee, you're trusted by default, right? And that often results in what we view as overly permissive access controls, right? So it makes it harder to detect what is actually malicious activity because so many users may have access, may have the authority to access certain data and systems, right, uh, in question. We also don't see the right logging taking place in a lot of organizations, right? A lot of organizations, and that's also on regular incident response engagements that we see, do not log successful system access, right? Now, when attackers work either with existing credentials or insiders, as in this specific case, they will work with legitimate credentials. They will not fail to log in to systems. You're not going to see 10 failed login attempts that could trigger a certain threshold alert, right? You're going to see a successful logon, right? Now, if you don't log these events, right, if you're only looking for blocks or denies, you will have a very hard time seeing what people have accessed in the environment. It will create a significant blind spot there for you, right? And of course, that is something that uh, that organizations have to address, and that will give them then later the ability to develop a program around trying to, for example, identify anomalies, right? What looks suspicious? Why is user X suddenly doing something radically different or accessing a different type of data store? But of course, you also have to realize that this type of investigation is, of course, uh, bound to generate a lot of false positives, right? There could be very legitimate reasons why, for example, an insider is suddenly accessing different systems, accessing larger amounts of data, etc. There could be reasons why uh, behavior is changed, right? And I think when I look at the security programs that, that most organizations have, it's still sort of very, very much focused on hardening the perimeter, right? Sort of that hard hard shell, soft core, right? And I mean, there are far fewer controls on internal networks, oftentimes poor network segmentation, right? And that combined with that poor visibility that I was talking about just shows you how challenging the situation can be for organizations to, to really effectively detect insider threats in a timely manner. So bottom line is we're seeing efforts towards this. But I think there are significant challenges that organizations are facing that they have to overcome to really become effective at detecting insiders. And you mentioned, I think, logging uh, in particular there, looking for anomalous events. But given the fact that this is a very different type of threat, um, what are some things that organizations can do 
maybe even now, maybe some low-hanging fruit uh, to improve monitoring and de- detection of these sorts of threats? Yeah, I think there's a number of things that organizations need to look at, right? I mean, uh, first of all, they got to realize that threat actors, just like insiders, just like traditional threat actors, will try to hide their actions, right? They may also try to divert culpability to other employees. So you need to understand that these investigations will be complex. But what you can do as an organization, first and foremost, just understanding where you're jewels in the network, right? Understand where all the data repositories are that have your most critical data assets, right? Logging any access to those critical assets, right? Even successful logins to those critical assets have to be stored and reserved, right? But then also, of course, implementing a policy of least privilege approach, right? Rather than giving everyone the broadest access, find out what is actually truly required by each and every individual, especially when it comes again to crown jewels, right? Who needs to truly be able to access that type of data? And then furthermore, of course, also limiting potential access, but also limiting sometimes the export functionality of larger quantities of data. Some of the inside investigations we see, we see an insider suddenly exporting a huge amount of data out of a database, right? Querying and running very, very broad queries rather than very, very specific queries. So there are controls that can be put in place to limit how much data, for example, can be queried at any one point in time, how much data can be exported, but then also implementing internally multi-factor authentication for critical systems and data, right? I think those are all important things that organizations can do to uh, to reduce the risk of insider threats here, right? But it's still ultimately hard to detect, right? I mean, oftentimes the insider, again, will be accessing data that he or she is entitled to access, right? It also involves people we inherently trust their own employees, right? And it requires not just good technical controls, good forensics and IR tools, but it also requires looking for anomalies, changes, and using some more traditional non-cyber investigative techniques to understand what is happening when it comes to insider threats and being able to effectively detect those. Now, outside the large data breach uh, incidents that made the news last year, I think one of the the growing areas of security concern, even in a lot of non-security circles, is just the extent to which we saw ransomware uh, really making headlines last year. Um, and I think in this report, too, we state that given the ease by which we see ransomware attacks being carried out, uh, willing, willingness by the victims to, to pay, we expect to see that continue and grow. Now into 2020 a little bit, are we starting to see any sort of increase in ransomware in the current environment? Is it remaining about steady as what we saw last year? And then I guess as a kind of follow on to that, what steps can we see organizations taking to reduce their likelihood of falling victim to these sorts of attacks? Yeah, we'll definitely continue to see an increase in ransomware attacks, and I'm afraid we don't expect to see that trend reversing anytime soon, right? As you already mentioned, they're easy to execute, they're low risk, high reward, right? I mean, they're unfortunately the perfect storm here, and there's many different types that, of attacks that fall into this type of category, as we discussed in Amtran's report two, three years ago. And uh, the result is, I mean, even people with very little expertise in, for example, building malware or knowing how to run these types of attacks can be successful because there are so many tools available online, right? There are threat actors out there offering services, offering malware to allow others to be successful at executing ransomware attacks, right? And and unfortunately, the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, right, again, just gives another 
attack vector here where attackers are able to prey on people's fears and hopes. They can send phishing emails, right, with promises about solutions, vaccines, testing capabilities, but also information about federal grants or any other relevant information that relates to COVID-19 here that will result in, in unfortunate victims opening attachments, clicking on links, etc., and being compromised. Uh, in fact, FireEye published a white paper not long ago about what organizations can do to try and protect against ransomware attacks, right? So we explained, for example, how to harden endpoints and what you can do about credential exposure, right? And we're doing a deeper dive into some of those categories during this in this white paper, like how do you prevent lateral movement and spread of ransomware? What can you do to provide endpoint segmentation, RDP hardening, disabling administrative and hidden shares, or disabling outdated and vulnerable protocols, right? But then also how you protect access to your systems, right? The remote uses of local accounts, reducing the exposure of privilege and service accounts, etc., cetera, uh, are all included as important tips in this white papers. I recommend organizations should definitely take a look at that. Uh, there are a lot of good tips in there that can help organizations not eliminate ransomware attacks, but be able to be in a situation where they're more easily able to contain those types of attacks. And then, of course, I mean, backups are another very important element, right? I mean, if all fails, you've got to be able to restore your data and you've got to make sure that your backups are segregated from the remainder of the network so they also don't get impacted by the ransomware attack as we see often happen, unfortunately, right? And of course, having a well-defined policy on how you will respond to a ransomware attack is another important element that organizations need to prepare for, right? Any good incident response plan needs to highlight how an organization will respond to a ransomware attack because these types of attacks leave the victim extremely little time to figure out their response strategy, right? Whether a victim will pay or not pay, and if they choose to pay, how will they obtain cryptocurrency? What are going to be the variables and criteria for them to decide if when and when not to pay have to be decided ahead of time. Because again, these attacks move extremely quick. Attackers will leave very, very little time to the victims to respond, right? If they want to have a chance at recovering their encryption keys or responding to whatever ransom request is out there, they got to have a good plan in place, right? I think the bottom line to me is, I mean, you can't prevent these types of attacks, but just like always, you can limit the impact, right? There's a lot of security best practices out there that really limit the ability of this malware to propagate through environments, right? And you need to prepare and decide how you're going to handle these types of situations when they do hit you. Time will be a luxury that you won't have. Preparedness is critical in these types of scenarios. That's good advice on that. And you've actually kind of alluded to my next question around the, the topic of uh, ransomware as a service. Moving even beyond that, um, as we continue to see the growth of, in general, crimeware as a service, whether it's ransomware um, or entities selling access to organizations they've compromised, how is that changing the threat landscape? Uh, and what do you think the impact will mean for breach investigations in 2020? Yeah, we're definitely seeing crimeware uh, having a significant impact to the, the threat landscape, right? I mean, we're seeing attackers use malware that was available for purchase, right? We're seeing card shops selling stolen payment card data, criminal forums selling PII, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, ultimately, it results in a higher level of specialization of those threat actors, a higher level of sophistication also for those threat actors, right? So think about it, right? I mean, someone who's good at developing malware, 
does not need to know how to launder money or sell data on forums, right? An intrusion operator can focus just on his or her activities without worrying about malware infrastructure, etc. So it allows threat actors to focus on those domains where they're the best at. Now, the result of this is, of course, it increases speed within which cyber criminals can monetize their operations, right? They don't need to find people and skills and build out skills internally to be able to address all the different stages of the threat lifecycle, right? They're just able to focus on certain components of it and can literally outsource the rest to crimeware operators, right? I mean, this also increases, of course, the scale of the breaches, right? I mean, there are organizations, I mean, threat actors out there that do nothing else but compromising other victim organizations and reselling this type of access, right? And uh, it also makes attribution a lot harder because when we now investigate these breaches, right, you will see, for example, a time lag and different threat actors potentially having been involved in a specific intrusion, right? It could be a different threat actor that got the initial foothold in an environment than the threat actor who ultimately compromise and stole data out of the environment. And it could be yet another threat actor that posted them in a forum to try and sell them, right? So attribution becomes, uh, becomes harder. But unfortunately, it is a trend we expect to continue, right? I mean, just like in, in regular crime, there is specialization, right? I mean, we do expect, unfortunately, this uh, crime as a service, as, as we call it, to continue to have a significant impact on, on breaches and on the threat landscape overall. And I would highly recommend anyone that's not yet had a chance to check out uh, the Untrends 2020 report, uh, go and do so. There's a lot more additional information. Before we wrap up, um, one of the things I wanted to get is what are your top three recommendations uh, for organizations? You know, we're, we're solidly into 2020 now, but I think a lot of the insights that came from this report can be useful uh, in crafting, uh, you know, kind of looking at this from a positive way of, of how do you prepare for the sorts of threats that we're actually seeing in the threat landscape. So if you were to give your top three recommendations uh, for the coming year, what would they be? It's hard to bring it down to just three, but if I had to pick three, I think here are my three that I would pick. First and foremost, it's again, improving detection, right? I mean, that means evolving, for example, a more compliance-based security operations center to have true detection and hunting capabilities, right? Detection is absolutely key for a rapid response and containment, right? Continuing to bring down that median dwell time is absolutely key for organizations. Because if you look at the impact that an organization has that is able to detect respond and contain an incident within hours or maybe a few days versus an organization where these incidents continue for hundreds of days, the, the difference is enormous, right? And I think that's absolutely key for organizations to realize, but not just only build out this, this detection capability, also validate it on a regular basis, validate its effectiveness, whether you do red teaming, purple teaming, or you use tools to validate and challenge regularly, your own security operations capability is absolutely key. So that would probably be my, my number one here. And my, my second one is probably related to cloud, right? I mean, every company, almost every company is moving to the cloud in one way or the other. 
right? And we see a lot of organizations not truly understanding how to integrate cloud into their overall security program, right? They need to verify that they're leveraging all of the security controls that are available. They need to document where they have gaps. They need to understand what data is in the cloud, and they need to adapt the incident response plan to truly include not just on-prem, but also the cloud environment. We just see a lot of organizations struggling with that and, and being impacted by that in the event of a breach. And my number three would be email defenses, right? And this is not just in light of COVID-19, which, as I said, generated, unfortunately, a lot of phishing campaigns, which we've also written about recently on our blog posts. I mean, it is still the number one attack vector in all investigations we conduct here, right? And I mean, user awareness, technical controls with email filtering, but also making it easy for users to report phishing to, for example, have a one-click button where users can say, this is a phishing email, educating them also that if they clicked on something that they do believe was suspicious, who do they need to contact within the security organization? These are all important defenses, right? While none of them are perfect and none of them will prevent malicious emails getting into the organization, they are absolutely critical to try and limit the risk as much as possible. Or if something does come in, creating rapid visibility that a phishing campaign may have been successful so the security team can take rapid action. So those would probably be my top three for the year here. All fantastic advice. I know it's hard to, to limit it to just three. Uh, Jürgen, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights uh, on into the End Trends 2020 report. Thank you again for having me here, Luke. Take care and have a great day. Mm-hmm.